Welcome to the Joint Trauma System's Clinical Practice Guidelines Podcast. This is Trevor from the Joint Trauma System. On this edition, we will be discussing the CPG for neurosurgery and severe head injury with Dr. Don Marion. Please note that the information contained in this presentation is only a guideline and not a substitute for clinical judgment. Opinions, interpretations, conclusions, and recommendations are those of the authors and are not necessarily endorsed by the services or DOD. It is my pleasure to have Dr. Don Marion here today. He is currently the Senior Clinical Consultant in the Clinical Affairs Division of the Defense and Veterans Brain Injury Center. Dr. Marion is an academic neurosurgeon who is focused on the clinical pathophysiology and treatment of traumatic brain injury for more than 25 years. He previously served as Professor and Chair of the Department of Neurosurgery, the Boston University School of Medicine, Professor and Vice Chair, Department of Neurosurgery, the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, as the Director of the Brain Trauma Research Center at the University of Pittsburgh. His skills, knowledge, and experiences with this topic are what bring him to us as the subject matter expert who will discuss the neurosurgery and severe head injury clinical practice guideline with us today. Welcome, Dr. Marion. Thank you, Trevor. Uh, It's a a pleasure and an honor to uh, provide this podcast. So today I'd like to talk to you all all about neurosurgery and severe head injury uh, with a particular focus of care of these patients in the austere environment where you may have limited resources. Significant head trauma presents as a complicating injury in at least a third of all trauma-related deaths in the United States. In the combat environment, multiple trends have been observed in the management of traumatic brain injury since 2003, warranting standardization of care of these casualties. I want to emphasize that any clinical practice guideline, including this, is not intended to supplant physician judgment. Guidelines are only intended to provide a basic framework for those less experienced uh, with delivery of care in this setting to the brain-injured patient. I would point out, however, that neurosurgeons at least have thought for a long time that consistent, high-quality, and evidence-based care is most likely to provide optimal outcomes for patients with uh, severe traumatic brain injury, as well as other diseases. This particular CPG uh, can be broken down into uh, eligibility for neurosurgical care at uh, Role 3 facilities, early evaluation and treatment, guidelines on transportation of the patient, aeromedical evacuation considerations, surgical management of moderate and severe head injuries, uh, as well as performance improvement monitoring, system reporting and frequency and responsibilities. At the end of this presentation, the participants should be able to interpret changes from the 2016 to the 2017 CPG publications, uh, manage surgical candidates in a combat setting, apply best practices for early evaluation and treatment, identify appropriate patient transport measures for battlefield evacuation and preventing complications, and employ proper documentation and reporting procedures for the Joint Theater Trauma System's guidance. There are a number of changes that have occurred from the 2016 to the 2017 clinical practice guideline. And and I might point out that these guidelines, the effort has been to update these guidelines at least every two years and oftentimes every one year. 
Uh, since the last edition, the 2016 edition of the Clinical Practice Guidelines, the Brain Trauma Foundation has published new evidence-based guidelines that recommend some changes, and I'll emphasize those as we go along. So the first is in the management of hypotension, uh, or shock, known to be uh, the leading cause of preventable death in theater. In the past, uh, the 2016 guideline had recommended that the systolic blood pressure be uh, maintained at uh, at least 90 millimeters of mercury. But current evidence, particularly evidence from uh, the state of Arizona, as published through uh, studies done at the University of Arizona, show that it's probably uh, optimal to keep the systolic blood pressure at 110 or 20 millimeters of mercury higher than that previous 90 millimeter of mercury threshold, particularly for those patients between the ages of 15 and 49, and those patients who are over the age of 70. The next issue is the Glasgow Coma Scale score and classification of the injured individual. The Joint Theater Trauma Systems Guidelines recommend use of the Glasgow Coma Scale score and, and of course, you can be classified as mild, moderate, or severe based on that score. So by definition, those with a Glasgow Coma Scale score of 3 to 8 are considered severe, those with 9 to 12, moderate, and those with 13 to 15, 15 being normal, are considered uh, mild uh, in terms of their injuries. I'd like to talk a little bit about eligibility for neurosurgical care at a Role 3 facility. In the military, at least during OIF, OEF, and Operation New Dawn, the uh, Role 3 facilities were typically the facilities that had a uh, board-certified neurosurgeon in attendance. So the recommendations for uh, determining eligibility for neurosurgical care varied uh, somewhat, again, during the Afghanistan and Iraq conflicts, uh, depending on whether the service member was a coalition force or a host national. For coalition forces, those with any penetrating or open skull or moderate injuries or severe head injuries were candidates for a role three facility, as well as those with head trauma with unexplained neurological deficits. Host nationals, on the other hand, moderate head injuries might be referred to role-free facilities. Those with severe head injuries, it really was based on the mission, tactical situation, and resources available. So in terms of uh, early evaluation and treatment of uh, service members, what was the initial or what is the recommendation for initial management of uh, severe head injury? Several things. First of all, hypotension must be aggressively avoided. As I mentioned before, uh, the current threshold has been elevated from 90 to 110 millimeters of mercury systolic. Blood products are preferred over albumin or Hespan, uh, and most especially whole blood is uh, frequently uh, recommended uh, for uh, treatment of, of shock. Normal saline is preferred for patients not requiring massive transfusion or other blood products. Normal ventilation is uh, recommended with a PCO2 of 35 to 40 millimeters of mercury. If you have capnometry, you can monitor that. Prophylactic hyperventilation is not recommended, and antibiotic use is unnecessary for isolated closed head injury. For those with penetrating uh, and open skull fractures, first-level antibiotic is cefzolin. Penetrating with gross contamination, metronidazole is recommended. Uh, 
In addition, it's recommended that glucose be monitored uh, if you have the facilities and capability to do that. And uh, as with prior uh, guidelines, uh, the use of uh, steroids is not recommended. So again, uh, management during that acute phase, management of hypotension uh, is encouraged and aggressively trying to keep the systolic blood pressure greater than 110. In addition, you want to keep or avoid hypoxemia, and so the SAO2 or the oxygen saturation in the blood is is kept at 93 to 95% with a partial pressure of oxygen greater than 80 millimeters of mercury. It's also important to do serial neurologic examinations so that you can quickly identify any neurologic deterioration. And and the elements of the neurologic examination most important for TBI are the Glasgow Coma Scale score, uh, as well as pupil size and reactivity, and then any gross focal neurologic signs or deficits. Someone, for example, who, when you first examine them, has great strength in both their arms and legs, and then over the course of several minutes or an hour or so, begins to develop uh, severe weakness uh, in their arm or, the, or their leg or both. And then transporting the patient. Coalition patients with severe head injury are uh, routinely transported to roll four facilities once they are stabilized. And again, it's critical to stabilize the blood pressure and uh, the uh, ventilation or the oxygenation of the blood as quickly as possible at the roll two and roll three facilities. Uh, Safe transport of patients with severe TBI frequently involves some sedation, intracranial pressure monitoring when available, and if there's any uh, evidence of a seizure or epileptic activity, the patient uh, should have anti-epileptic treatment uh, medications such as Dilantin or Tagritol. Transfer of patients over uh, some distances for, hour, say, several hours or more typically is most safely done with sedation of the patient. And vecuronium, uh, which is a relatively uh, short-acting paralytic, is uh, recommended with bolus dosing. Propofol is the preferred sedative because it's quickly acting and quickly reversible. And then pain management uh, with intermittent narcotics also is a a reasonable, but intermittent uh, medication rather than continuous infusion uh, is recommended. If the patient has intracranial hypertension, the recommendation in the uh, Joint Theater Clinical Practice Guideline is for treatment of that with uh, 3% saline. The indication for intracranial hypertension, or, or the, the, uh, you, you uh, may uh, be concerned about intracranial hypertension if there is uh, an abrupt deterioration in the neurologic status of the patient or a localization of uh, neurologic signs, such as a unilateral weakness of an arm or leg, or a unilateral dilation of the pupil that loses reactivity to light. So the clinical practice guideline provides a prescriptive uh, advice on use of 3% saline. A 250 milliliter bolus is recommended, followed by infusion of 50 to 100 millimeters, milliliters per hour en route to a roll-free facility. The goal is to achieve a serum sodium level of 
150 to 160 uh, milligrams per deciliter. It's recommended that a central venous line be uh, placed for administration of hypertonic saline as this can uh, cause a significant constriction of uh, peripheral uh, veins. Mannitol can be considered as an alternative to 3% saline for patients who have rapid neurologic deterioration or other signs of elevated intracranial pressure. However, in uh, austere environments or in the, in the field, especially if there's uh, very hot conditions, uh, mannitol may precipitate. Antiepileptic medications are administered if there is uh, evidence of seizure activity. Seizure prophylaxis for the first seven days after a moderate severe head injury also may be considered uh, and is shown to be beneficial with either the use of phenytoin, phosphenytoin, or levtyracetam. Other considerations for transportation of the patient include avoiding uh, hyperthermia or fever and treating that aggressively, uh, reverse Trendelenburg to 30 to 45 degrees to keep the head of the bed elevated above the level of the heart, spine and spinal cord injury protection uh, with a rigid collar, gastric ulcer prevention, and consideration of enteral nutrition. This is uh, another change or slight change from the uh, 2016 guidelines the uh, enteral nutrition recommendations for 2016 only uh, talked in terms of enteral nutrition, and 2017 parenteral nutrition or parenteral uh, feeding methods also are described. In terms of aeromedical evacuation, there are several uh, important considerations uh, involving intracranial pressure monitoring and drains, and most especially pneumocephalus uh, and the risk of venous thrombosis. Um, I'm sure everyone on, on this podcast knows that air uh, will expand as you go to higher elevations. Certainly, if you have a, a pocket of air inside the skull, that can be a problem. And so uh, often, if you've uh, at a Roll 2 facility or a Roll 3 facility, for example, if you have evidence of intracranial air, uh, it may be wise to uh, hold on to that patient for a bit until the air resolves prior to aeromedical transport. All intracranial drains that are in place prior to transport by uh, AeroVac systems should be left in place during the transport. Intracranial pressure typically will go up somewhat uh, during transport, and that should be aggressively treated. Uh, certainly, intracranial pressure monitoring is recommended, if possible, during transport. It is recommended that the drains that are in place prior to transport be uh, periodically flushed during transport if they stop draining. The uh, consideration of pneumocephalus, I think I've discussed, again, it may be prudent to delay transport until uh, there's evidence that the air is dissipated because uh, air inside the skull can be a, a real problem as it expands uh, during aeromedical transport. And again, patients in the uh, fixed-wing aircraft in particular should always be transported by loading them head-first into the rear of the plane so that when the plane takes off, that the head remains elevated. Uh, this is uh, somewhat different than uh, what has been recommended in the past in that uh, patients were typically loaded onto the aircraft feet-first. But in uh, the austere environment and in the, in the uh, combat settings, uh, it's recommended that they be loaded head-first. 
There is a, a risk of venous thromboembolism that has been noted to be elevated in aeromedical transport of severely injured patients. So in the 2017 guidelines, it now is recommended that venous thromboprophylaxis be uh, used. Anoxaparin is the drug of choice. It has not been shown to have significant potential for hemorrhagic issues. So anoxaparin, 30 milligrams twice a day, or uh, even sub-Q heparin is recommended. In terms of the surgical management of moderate and severe uh, head injuries, non-operative intracranial hematoma management should be followed with serial imaging clinical examinations for small clots. Operative care is indicated for patients with larger hematomas. This is typically done via craniotomy or a craniectomy. The other surgical procedure, of course, is uh, placement of an intracranial pressure monitor. Recommendations for intracranial pressure monitoring are included in the 2017 guidelines. They were not in the 2016 guidelines. And basically, in the new CPG, it is recommended that management of severe TBI patients using information from ICP monitoring is recommended to reduce in-hospital and two-week post-injury mortality. ICP monitoring for severe TBI and normal CT uh, is also recommended for those who are older than 40, have unilateral or bilateral posturing, have a systolic blood pressure less than 90, or are are intoxicated uh, or have a a neurologic exam that cannot readily be followed. The uh, ICP monitoring options include external ventricular drains, parenchymal intracranial pressure monitoring devices, and uh, uh, there is some work uh, currently being uh, done looking at optic nerve sheath monitoring as a surrogate for ICP monitoring. The goal is to uh, maintain an intracranial pressure of 22 millimeters of mercury or less. This, again, is a slight change from the 2016 guidelines, which had recommended 20 millimeters of mercury or less. In addition, we think not only in terms of the intracranial pressure, but the relationship of the intracranial pressure with amine arterial pressure. So uh, physiologic parameter called the cerebral perfusion pressure is derived uh, as the difference between the mean arterial pressure and the ICP. Uh, and uh, in the 2017 guideline, the target cerebral perfusion pressure for survival and favorable outcomes is considered between 60 and 70 millimeters of mercury, where 60 millimeters of mercury uh, may be the minimum optimal CPP if uh, uh, there is a problem with the autoregulation. That is to say that when you try to increase the mean arterial pressure, the ICP goes up with it. And uh, uh, so there's a a window uh, of 60 to 70 that you should uh, target. Uh, What types of hematomas require evacuation? Well, there are epidural hematomas, subdural hematomas, and traumatic parenchymal lesions. In general, uh, it's thought that those uh, epidural hematomas that are 30 cc's of volume or larger uh, will require evacuation. And uh, in those patients who are comatose with uh, epidural hematomas of 15 millimeters in thickness or uh, or greater and uh, greater than 5 millimeters of midline shift, uh, also would benefit from surgery. Subdural hematomas, uh, the thickness, if greater than 10 millimeters, or if associated with a midline shift greater than 5 millimeters, will uh, benefit from craniotomy and evacuation. 
For those that are smaller in size, it depends on the clinical examination, and certainly if they have a worsening neurologic examination, you may consider surgery for even a smaller clot. In terms of traumatic parenchymal lesions, the problem with those is that very frequently uh, surgery on these lesions will require removal of potentially functional brain tissue as well. So uh, a larger size clot in these individuals is typically tolerated. Uh, Greater than 50 cc's, however, in a patient who's considered salvageable is often a size of an interparenchymal lesion that will cause problems and will need to be evacuated. Patients with a Glasgow Coma score of 6 to 8 with frontal or temporal contusions greater than 20 cc's also should be considered as possible surgical candidates since they are at greater risk for uncle herniation or herniation of the uh, uh, medial part of the temporal lobe into the brainstem. In terms of posterior fossa mass lesions, whenever there's a mass effect on a non-contrast CT scan associated with neurologic dysfunction, surgery should be strongly uh, considered because uh, there's relatively very little space in the posterior fossas compared to the supratentorial compartment. So even a small increase in the volume of those uh, masses or clots uh, can cause uh, real problems in compression of the brainstem. Sometimes... uh, Neurosurgeon may not have the availability of a CT scan to uh, help them localize exactly where the clot is, and uh, rarely there may be need for exploratory burr holes uh, to uh, try to, to identify exactly where the, uh, the clot is. Uh, and so there are classic positions for placement of those exploratory burr holes. But most of the time, uh, you're better off if you have a CT scan available. Traumatic aneurysms uh, are another uh, problem, but uh, somewhat less common, more often associated with penetrating injuries or gunshot wounds or shrapnel injuries, for example. In the case of penetrating injuries, uh, then superficial debridement is warranted, followed by scalp closure. The uh, exploration of the uh, tract of a bullet wound, for example, through the brain is not recommended in most cases. More recently, probably in the last decade or so, the use of decompressive craniectomies has become increasingly a common procedure in theater, particularly as an effective way to deal with brain swelling, at least until the patient can be transported to a role for or higher facility for more prolonged and intensive critical care. The um, problem with blast injuries has been explored a great deal recently. There are several different types of problems caused by blasts. There's a primary blast overpressure, an injury from the pressure waves, uh, secondary injury from penetrating fragmentation, tertiary injury, which is caused by um, displacement of debris and fragments, and then uh, the quaternary or or thermal effects uh, injury. In terms of the skull flap management, that too is described in CPG. It's not recommended that the skull flap be saved because the uh, artificial um, plastic materials that can be used for skull reconstruction are so good these days that a very nice cosmetic result can occur and you will avoid uh, some of the complications of degradation of the original bone flap. 
In addition, this is a, sort of a minor change from the 2016 CPG in that the um, difference in management of skull flaps between coalition forces and host nationals has been removed uh, from the 2017 version of uh, the CPG. The uh, final comments I would make are on ICP monitoring and surgical intervention. ICP monitoring or surgical intervention may not be uh, indicated or advised uh, for patients with uh, GCS of 3 to 5, uh, diffuse anoxic injury, uh, that is specifically injury that is confirmed on CT scan, or uh, those who would require long-term or rehabilitative capabilities. So uh, with that, I think I'll conclude. There are some other sections on performance improvement and so forth, but um, I'll take questions at this point. Thank you, Dr. Marion. Could you share a few background stories of what led to the development of the CPG? Sure. During uh, the early stages of uh, conflict in OIF and OEF, it was increasingly uh, a problem that patients who were service members were subjected to uh, IEDs, blast injuries that uh, not infrequently caused uh, moderate or severe traumatic brain injuries. And um, the, the neurosurgeons uh, charged with the care of those service members uh, were oftentimes trained at uh, a variety of different residency training programs throughout the United States, in addition to residency training programs at the Uniformed Services University here in uh, Washington. But that disparate management uh, had long been considered to be uh, problematic and not consistent with the highest level of care, as had been uh, suggested by the Brain Trauma Foundation some a decade and a half prior to that. So uh, in 2005 and in 2006, uh, several of the military neurosurgeons uh, got together and uh, put down some of the most important uh, factors they felt were uh, important to keep in mind when providing the acute care, uh, both medical and surgical care of patients with severe traumatic brain injury in order to standardize uh, their care using uh, highest quality of available recommendations. Thank you. What are the challenges with implementing this CPG while in an austere environment? The um, CPGs, as long as you have a copy of them and as long as you uh, have access to the actual documents, um, the CPGs have specifically been designed and fashioned to provide practical guidance in the austere environment so that they don't rely on technology, for example, or devices or instruments or drugs that are uh, not likely to be available. Everything that's written in the CPGs are things that providers at Role 2 and certainly at Role 3 facilities will be able to implement. So I don't see major challenges, and, and, and frankly, I think that that is a real advantage of the JTS clinical practice guidelines as compared to other guidelines such as the Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines in that these guidelines are specifically written for practical implementation in the military. Oh, thank you. What are the significant changes to the CPG from 2016 to 2017? Probably the most significant is uh, management of hypotension. Uh, and as I alluded to earlier in the talk, there are several very good studies now, including a large uh, study of statewide TBI population in uh, Arizona that have uh, suggested that outcomes might be improved by maintaining a systolic blood pressure of 110 millimeters of mercury or higher in the pre-hospital and acute care uh, setting. Uh, and this is an increase of uh, 
of 20 millimeters of mercury uh, from the 90 millimeters that was the threshold in the 2016 CPG. In addition, enteral and parenteral methods or GI or uh, intravenous methods of feeding are now provide uh, guidance for that uh, nutritional supplementation is provided in the 2017 version. It's explicitly recommended that anticoagulant therapy with enoxaparin or subcutaneous heparin be used for prevention of uh, deep venous thrombosis. The uh, target uh, cerebral perfusion pressure for uh, severe TBI has more explicitly been described as a range between 60 and 70, which is somewhat more narrow than the previous one. Uh, Thank you. So do you see any more changes being implemented in 2018? At this point, I don't. Some of the major changes that were recommended in the 2017 version uh, coincided with publication of the fourth edition of the Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines. Those guidelines are only uh, revised every five years or so. So in 2018, that won't uh, be a factor. You know, otherwise, I would say that the only possible major change actually might be guidance on whether or not general surgeons should have the abilities for doing uh, neurosurgical procedures. And the uh, JTS workgroup for CPGs is working on a draft of uh, a CPG for that now. Okay. Earlier, you mentioned some other published guidelines related to TBI. How does the JTS CPG compare to those other published guidelines? The JTS CPG uh, is an actual working document. In other words, you can take uh, that CPG and and you can follow that uh, and use it as a practical guide for every step of the care that you need to provide to the patient with severe traumatic brain injury. so, so it's really focused on being a practical guide and covering all of the acute care issues that you might confront. The other major guideline is uh, the Brain Trauma Foundation guideline, and that guideline is designed somewhat differently in that it focuses on a relatively arbitrary and small number of controversial treatment or uh, physiologic issues and just focuses on providing a comprehensive scour of the literature uh, and and uh, grading of the quality of that literature that does or does not support those arbitrary small number of recommendations. So it's, it's not as the uh, other guidelines, specifically Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines, are not as practical, I would say, as the Joint Theater Trauma System guidelines. Okay. Are the JTS clinical practice guidelines evidence-based or consensus-based? I think they're primarily consensus-based, but they include whatever evidence there is. I've been involved in the Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines in the past. I was one of the co-authors of the original Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines for severe traumatic brain injury. And I can tell you that One of the problems we encountered very early on with that endeavor in trying to only focus on the high-quality evidence was that for these practical medical and surgical questions that we encounter in caring for these patients, uh, there are very, very few of those questions that have uh, support from high-quality data. In other words, if you talk in terms of monitoring intracranial pressure uh, with an intracranial pressure monitor, there are no randomized controlled clinical studies, the gold standard, that 
prove that monitoring intracranial pressure is a good thing to do or that it improves outcomes for TBI patients. But in some of those cases, such as ICP monitoring, there probably never will be a good high-quality study for that because there's no equipoise. It's clear in most clinicians' minds that it's an important thing to do. So you can go down the line of the kinds of clinical things that we do, the treatments, the thresholds and stuff that we look at, and and, uh, there are precious few areas where there's high-quality data to support it. Okay, so then that being said, which is better, an evidence-based or consensus-based approach? I think from a practical level, a consensus-based approach that attempts to provide uh, best available evidence for every clinical question or issue that comes up in the day-to-day care of a TBI patient is the best. Oh, thank you. Is there something in the CPG that stands out to you as most important or interesting? The most interesting thing to me, again, as I said, as a uh, original author of the Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines in 1992 and 93, the most interesting thing I find about the JTS guidelines are that, that they're far more practical, and you know, they, I find them much more usable, uh, user-friendly, if you will, for the military providers, and especially in the military neurosurgeons or the military surgeons. Uh, than the uh, Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines. And I, I think that's great. I mean, I, I think that that's really a huge step forward in terms of our ability to provide high-quality care for injured service members. What about the use of hypertonic saline? Would you consider that a unique part of the CPG? For a number of years, neurosurgeons in the civilian world have considered hypertonic saline as a possible uh, treatment for brain swelling. And so they... Um, Uh, did several small clinical studies and couldn't clearly demonstrate that hypertonic saline was beneficial or any more beneficial than mannitol, which had been the kind of the standard treatment for brain swelling. A problem that was very soon found in austere environments and especially uh, hot climates was that mannitol, when kept on the shelf, would precipitate and couldn't be reconstituted uh, uh, in an effective way. It turned out that hypertonic saline was uh, a much better treatment for brain swelling in the military because of that, because we, you know, in in the austere environments, you didn't have the opportunity to refrigerate uh, your medications uh, as you might like. And so hypertonic saline has been uh, promoted as uh, the optimal treatment of brain swelling in the military, whereas mannitol might still be used in civilian centers. Thanks, Dr. Marion. We appreciate you taking the time today to share your expertise with all of our listeners. Sure. This concludes this edition of the Combat Casualty Care Podcast. Please return for our next edition by subscribing through your podcast app or check back on the website. Remember that you can always find the latest TC3 and Combat Casualty Care information, knowledge tools, and the current guidelines at www.deployedmedicine.com, all one word. You can also download the Deployed Medicine mobile application to your phone or tablet. On the app, you can access the latest TC3 content and JTS clinical practice guidelines, as well as instructional videos and classes. Feel free to provide feedback, ask questions, prompt discussions, or make a combat casualty care suggestion on the feedback form of the website. 
Our target is eliminating preventable combat death, which can be achieved with the right training and the right tools applied by the right people at the right time. As always, stay safe out there and continue saving lives on the battlefield, wherever that battlefield or deployed setting or street is in the world.